Welcome to the Well Community Jokes. This is my privilege to be able to introduce our speaker. I think for some of you, you already know him. I think he's been here before speaking. And um, by the way, I should mention that, you know, Wes, the, the church I was talking about in Aaron, that's actually Wes's home church. So um, he's got some connection to this tragedy that has happened there. But it's great to have Pastor Wes and his wife Beth with us. Uh, Wes is the pastor, the youth pastor over at Gateway Church, which of course is our sponsoring church over in Caledonia. And uh, he's been working with the church there a few years now. Uh, his wife uh, Beth works in Ancaster and in the church she's involved in worship and she's one of the junior high leaders. Beth, maybe just wave. I, by the way, I'm sorry for that shot I took at you there before, so please forgive me. Uh, you can come and get back at me after the service in love, of course. Um, anyway, uh, we're great. We're so good to have you here. Rona and I have heard Wes numerous times on many occasions when we've been attending Gateway on Sunday mornings. Our youngest son, Regan, and his wife attend that church, so we've been there quite often. And, and we have always been, been just so challenged and encouraged through his, his ministry. And, and he's just a, a wonderful speaker and just loves God's word. And so uh, with that in mind, uh, would you join me just welcoming Wes as he comes and speak? Awesome. Thank you so much for those uh, kind words, Eugene. Uh, um, yeah, so uh, good evening, Finbrook. Good to be with you guys. Um, I don't know if I've ever been here to speak in person yet. I think I was like over a screen with you guys that one time during COVID. I think that's right. I think I've, I've definitely been here and I've hung out with you guys, but I don't know if I've been here to speak before. So um, anyways, I'll just say it's a privilege to be here. I definitely need to, to raise this. This is a common problem for me. We can fix this though. It's okay. It's okay. Um, that should be, that should be a little bit better. Anyways, as you were saying, my name is Wes Dixon. I'm the youth pastor at Gateway Church. Um, again, it's a pleasure, guys, to be here. Uh, so, I, yeah, again, I think I started with a message online with you guys. I have been here. This is pre-COVID, but it's, it's been a little while, so it's all to say it's really good to be here, especially to a church connected to Gateway. You guys are. Um, so the, the series we're about to jump into in the next three weeks is one called One Page Wonders. It's one I wrote uh, kind of in July for Gateway. And this series is all about the shorter books of the Bible, the uh, books that we so often miss out on because of how short they are. Um, they're the books you might not know exist because they might be stuck together in the pages of your Bible. You might have just missed them. That's very fair. They're that tiny. Um, they're short, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, because in our culture, there is a sense in which sometimes shorter is better, and sometimes less is more. Sometimes there are certain things that need to be said uh, where you just need to get right to the point. Sometimes we don't want a phone call, right? We just need a text message. Uh, sometimes we don't want a meeting in our work schedules. We just need an email, for the love of all things. Sometimes we don't need an essay. We need a paragraph. Some messages are so important that we just need to get right to them. And these short books that we'll be looking at are like this as well. They're short, but they're powerful in what they have to say for us. And this is why I've titled this series One Page Wonders. It's riffing off of the old phrase, one hit wonders. You know uh, from those bands who put out kind of one song, but nothing else, one song that hit the platinum uh, records or something like that, but nothing else afterwards kind of compared to it. Those songs, uh, they have huge sway in our culture to this day. They were wildly popular, but the bands that put them out, again, didn't put much else out. We'll, we'll show you some examples after. And so we're comparing these smaller books of the Bible to these one hit wonder bands. Uh, although they, like those bands, they don't have a ton of material to go off of, 
uh, what they did produce is worthwhile. There is much to be found in these tiny, tiny books of the Bible, truth that is relevant to our lives today. Now, as we get into our conversation today and we move towards the book that we're going to be talking about, I want to look at the other side of the musical spectrum because I think you have to understand the full musical spectrum uh, to understand what one-hit wonders are. Because if on one side you have a one-hit wonder like Come On Eileen by the Dexys Midnight Runners, where uh, three of their top five songs on Spotify are Come On Eileen, and the rest of their songs haven't even uh, come to a tenth of the popularity of that song. On the other side, I think you have other bands uh, that are perennial bands that have put out hit after hit after hit. And I think uh, these are some of the large rock bands from the 20th century. Those are some of the best examples of them. The Who. Zeppelin, ACDC, others like them. Without these bands, you don't understand what one-hit wonders are. They're kind of the antithesis of them. And I bring these up uh, because I want to look at kind of two bands here, which I think get uh, the most uh, acclaim when it comes to being the biggest band. That is the Beatles and the Stones. They've kind of been in competition for a long while in people's minds. They're kind of tied together because each band has hit after hit after hit. If someone doesn't like them, it's usually not because they don't appreciate the music. It's because they've heard them too much on the radio. It's like this song again. Um, Paint It Black, I Can't Get No Satisfaction, Give Me Shelter, songs from the Stones that are played over and over again. On the Beatles side, Hey Jude, Let It Be, Here Comes the Sun. These are all songs from different times that were all hits in their own right. Uh, you could give modern examples. Ed Sheeran and Taylor Swift are perfect examples of this. They have done so much of the same in their own right, song after song, album after album. There are hits to be found with these guys. But I bring this all up today. Because actually, I want to take a look at one Beatles song in particular that I think will set up the book that we want to look at tonight really, really well. The song is a famous one, like most of theirs. It's called uh, All You Need Is Love. I'm sure most of you have heard that song before. Uh, this song is as it sounds. It's written by John Lennon specifically. It's written actually in 1967 in the middle of Cold War tensions. The, Beatle put out, the Beatles put out this anthem dedicated to universal love that transcends all borders, all differences, all laws, and even all religions, according to them. The essence of the song is that anything can be done and to do that, all we need is love. That's it. Love can break down barriers, differences, borders, you name it. We just have love that'll fix the problem. And this, I would say, is a common refrain in music kind of coming off of that time. What a Wonderful World uh, by Louis Armstrong. It's an example of that. John Lennon wrote another song along these lines. Imagine. Imagine a world where all our systems are gone, right? And there's just common brotherly love. Uh, Ed Sheeran, recently in one of his past albums, wrote a song called What Do I Know, where he says, uh, love could change the world, but what do I know? And the let's could go on, but there's this general sense right now in art and culture at this moment that if humans just loved more or maybe loved better, that the world wouldn't be in the place that it's in today. And I bring this up today because I think this is a very hot topic issue, specifically for us within the church. I think it's a very hot topic for us. See, the church is a group of people who claim that they come from and serve this God who in their scriptures is described as love. They claim to be a loving people. But here's the thing. There is a general perception in the culture around us that, yes, the church is loving, but they're only so loving. For a lot of people, this seems to be the case. The church is actually maybe even, for their uh, minds, part of the problem. Some would say, look, they say they love everybody, but really they don't. They're intolerant when it comes to issues like sexuality and gender. They're outdated when it comes to marriage and divorce. 
they miss the mark and are unloving in regards to some key issues of our day, like women's rights and abortion. And so, yes, they're loving, but look, it has boundaries. And this is the issue that I want to tackle today. I know I just raised a ton of controversial subjects there, but I don't want to tackle them specifically. More generally, today, uh, what I want to do is wrestle with this perception that the church seems to have boundaries on its love. But today, I actually want to ask this question specifically. Does the church have limits on its love? Does the church have limits on its love? Ask yourself that question. And look, this question actually is very much for anybody here listening today or online um, who isn't a Christian. Because again, I, I think this sentiment is true time and time again. Uh, I, sorry, it's not that it's, it's true, but it's a, a general uh, uh, idea that much of our culture holds. The perception that the church isn't as loving as it says it is. And so if, look, if you're not from the church or you're new to the church, I hope this can be an answer for you today. Uh, but for many of you who are talking, you guys have been here for a while. You've probably been Christians for a little while. I think the answer will still be beneficial for you as well, because it'll hopefully give you some insight and some help in discussing and responding to these things. So there is a practical element to this. And so to answer this today, we're going to be reading from 2 John. It's one of the four shortest books in the entire Bible. Um, again, it's really, really teeny tiny. You might miss it if you're flipping through. Um, it's kind of towards the end of your Bible. And although it's not directly asking this question that we're asking, I promise you it wrestles with love and the church and the world around it. And very specifically, it gives a definition of what Christian love is. And that's key for today, okay? So let's dig in. I'm actually, I'm going to read the first six verses, and that's what we're going to focus on today. Um, so if you want to open up your Bibles, grab your phones, whatever it is, um, I think it's going to be on the screen. I'm not sure. I might have not put it on the screen. Oh, it is. Cool. Cool. That's good. All right. Second John 1. I'm still like this. The elder to the lady chosen by God and to her children whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth because of the truth, which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, Father's Son, who will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, uh, but one we have heard from the, be the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, uh, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his commands is that we walk in love. And so that's the first half of 2 John. So let's give context to what's going on here. Because again, our goal tonight is to answer our original question, and the answers, I believe, are in the text right here. Okay, so let's check it out. The letter begins with this address from this person, the elder. Kind of weird, we wouldn't say that, but um, this elder is John. He's John the disciple and apostle. Um, it's his title. He's much older at this point, so this is the guy that walked around with Jesus, um, and he's serving what is most likely a group of house churches. Um, this John that is writing the letter is the same John that writes 1 John and 3 John, and he also wrote the Gospel of John, okay? Now, he's writing to somebody that he calls the lady chosen by God, and this kind of sounds like what a first-year Bible college student might call a girl that he really likes, but the letter is far more than a cheesy love letter, okay? Who is addressed here, the lady chosen by God? It's actually a very contested topic within theology. It's a big question, actually, for Second John scholars. See, there are too many, too many camps of, uh, of thought when it comes to it, um, because it's never actually made explicitly clear who this person is at all. The two options you have is that this is a specific woman who actually has literal children. Um, and the other option is that the elect lady is a title kind of like the elder, except it's for a church rather than a specific person. 
It's well documented within the New Testament that the church has been compared to a woman. Paul uses that allusion very, very often. And probably most famously, the church is referred to as a bride in uh, Revelation. Um, in the Old Testament, Israel was often referred to as God's wife in a variety of passages. And so it's not crazy to think that John was talking about a church here. And although there are many arguments to both sides, and I kind of only presented one, the reason I did that is I think that's the most likely scenario, given what I've just said. Um, I think it's a church that John is talking to. Now, let me pause here for a moment and give you a quick outline of what 2 John is going to kind of look like. In the book of 2 John, there are a total of 13 verses. But today, again, we're just focusing on the first six. And again, that's because there's so much packed into the verses. This letter is basically an encouragement of John's where he implores the church, love each other, and to guard the truth that they have. Again, it's a short letter, ton packed into it. The first six uh, verses deal primarily with John and his encouragement for the church to love one another. Okay, so that's the part we're focusing on. And in these six verses, which I'm going to put on the screen here, um, John repeats two words uh, over 10 times, uh, five for each word. And the two words I'm going to highlight on the screen, as I've already mentioned, um, they're going to be truth, uh, love and truth. Now, John is going to sound like a broken record, and you might have heard it when I first read it there, um, but these two words are key for us today. You see, John starts out immediately with these words. I'm going to read it here. To the lady chosen by God and to her children, we just read that, but he continues, whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but also those who know the truth because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. It's very repetitive, right? It's because that's intentional. The words are very important for John. And actually, specifically, this phrase here at the beginning is why these words are so important. The phrase, love in the truth. Hold on to that. Look at that. Don't let go of it. This is the key to answering our question today. We can understand what this phrase means. We can answer our question of, does the church have limits on its love? And this is because the phrase, love in the truth, is the definition of how the church is called to love people. It is, in other words, I would argue, the Christian definition of love. Very important for us today. And here's the thing. I'm going to tip my hand to you guys here. Um, I'm going to let you in on where we're going. To answer the question of does the church have limits on its love, the answer to me is no. And the reason is that the church has a different definition of what love is. And I believe this is why many perceive the church as having limits on its love. Now, that's a claim I just made. We've got to prove this. We've got to look at the text. So keep your Bibles open. Keep reading. Make sure you're checking about what I'm saying, okay? To prove this to you today, we're going to break down, expand on, and explain that phrase, love and the truth, because as I said, it's the Christian definition of love. And if we want to prove this answer today, we need to look at John's definition here. And we're going to start with the first of the two big words, okay? Love. Because I actually think we already have enough within the text here to explain what John means by that. Now, before we do this, I, I want to get uh, a little interactive here. I want to ask all of you, what is love? If anybody sitting beside you says, baby, don't hurt me, don't acknowledge them, that's not funny. But seriously, I want to take a moment, one minute, with the people around you, find somebody if you can't have anybody, and I want to ask this question, what is love? Define it, give examples of it, and hold on to that definition because you're going to need it. you got one minute, three, two, one, Go. I know, joke's on you. You thought, you thought I'd be speaking the whole time. You guys got to talk too. Just a little bit of time. What is love? How do you define it? If you don't have anybody besides you, just kind of keep it in your own head. Um, make sure you, you have a definition that you're running off of. I want this to be a baseline for us to go off of here. You're not going to get in trouble. I'm not going to ask you questions. Don't worry. Pick your own answer. It's all good. 
All right, we'll give you 10 seconds, finish up those conversations. All right, five, four, three, two, one. Okay, I'm, I'm sure that the question sparked at least some thoughts in your mind. Some of you maybe uh, said it's, it's more of an emotion, love is a feeling, it's something we feel for somebody else. Maybe some of you said love is an action. It's a very biblical answer. And maybe some of you talked about an experience that you had, right? Maybe it was something between a husband and a wife, an anniversary gift, a sweet date. Maybe it was uh, a, a kindness that you were given by a stranger that you pointed to. Um, whatever you answered, I want you to hold on to your definition because we want to actually compare it against John's definition. Again, I'm not going to ask you later. You're not in trouble. But I think it's important to understand what we think and what John thinks here. And see, to do this again, we're going to actually have to look at the word that John is using when he uses the word love. Because you might or might not have heard, but in the Greek, the language that this was written in, um, there are four words for love. So C.S. Lewis's the book, it's called The Four Loves, made this very popular. Um, but in English, we kind of cram all of our expressions of love into one word, right? I can say I love my wife, and I could say I love my job. Two different things, two different feelings and expressions of that, but they're the same thing, right? We use the same word. The Greeks, they didn't have time for that. They were very organized. They had four different words to describe different kinds of loves. For example, there's eros, that's sexual or romantic love. There's storge, which is familial love, love for a parent or a grandparent. Uh, there's philia, that's a deep love for a friend. Think Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And finally, there's agape. And this is a unique one. And it's the one that John actually uses in this letter. Now, agape in the Greek uh, kind of world was considered the highest of loves. That's because agape was the divine love. Agape is associated with God in our scriptures, actually. 1 John 4.16, another letter by John in which John says the famous words, that God is love. It's the only time that God is like an adjective in the New Testament like that. The word he uses there is agape. God is agape. So what is it? Well, the old word that we often use to translate it was charity. Now, we use charity to describe the money we give to a nonprofit, right? Uh, you guys are talking about your finances, right? You give to the church, that's charity donation in some way. Um, now, you might even describe the church in terms of the government says as a charity. It's a nonprofit. And that kind of actually gets to the point. Charity is an altruistic act, meaning it's selfless. You don't care about yourself for the sake of another. You give money that you earn that you could spend on yourself to a charity or somebody else so they can benefit. And this is kind of what agape love is. It's God's love. It's sacrificial love. It's altruistic. It's the kind of love totally done for the good of another. Example, check out 1 John 4.10. This is love, which again, this word love is agape. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God's love is the kind of love where he foregoes what he deserves and chooses to actively pursue our good. Jesus came down and died so we might live. And it's that love, that example, that John says that he has for the church. And actually, if we move into verse 5, it's this love that he calls for the church to have for one another. You guys to have with each other. This is the main reason that John writes the letter. It's to encourage them to love. Verse 5, it, relates, it reads like this. And now, dear lady, I'm writing you not a new command, but one that we had from the beginning. I ask that we love another, again, that we agape one another. You see, even though this is God's love, as his image bearers, as people, we can actually love in this way. 
To put it simply, take this definition from this guy named St. Thomas Aquinas. He's an old church father, but I think he got it right when he said this. Love or agape in our context as humans is to will the good of the other. Meaning that love, agape love, fundamentally is about your ability to pursue and push for the good of the person or the thing that you're concerned about. And this love is all over our culture and world. This kind of love is a story that we tell all the time. It's, it's the sacrificial love. It's the highest love. It's the highest story even that our world has to offer. Um, this is why uh, Avengers Endgame, a very culturally popular thing, um, ends the way it does. So spoilers right now, you got two seconds to plug your ears if you haven't watched this movie or if you care. And anyway, um, at the end of it, the spoilers are, Tony uh, snaps his fingers as this guy. He sacrifices himself for the whole world. That's agape love. It's self-sacrificial love for the gain of others. This is in the movies all over, and there's a reason for it. It's the highest kind of love that we know. The stories in my life that I remember are often stories and examples of agape love. Uh, my wife, Beth, she originally grew up in BC. She drove out here, literally actually drove, which is crazy anyways, but she flew different times. But um, she came out here to live here in Ontario with me. That is self-sacrificing love. She gave up the life that she knew to come and make a life here with me. And that is one of the greatest gifts I have ever received. It is incredible, and it makes me weak sometimes when I think about it. See, when you sacrifice for others in your life out of a place where you don't look to gain anything, that's agape love. When you pursue their good over your own, that kind of love is agape love. And so now return to John's statement. Now let's full circle come back. Love in the truth, which I said is the Christian definition of love. We can now sub out the word love for our definition here. To will the good of the other in truth. And we've done a lot of solid work here. I get it. A lot of work. We've defined our first word. That was part of our goal. But the question that we have to ask if we want to understand this statement is what do we mean by the good? What does John mean by the good? Because I highlight this here because love comes in all shapes and sizes. In other words, the good of something or someone can change depending on the situation you find yourself in. It's why we all had different answers potentially when we asked the question of what is love? That's why you gave different examples. You all have experienced love in different ways. How I show love to my wife, Beth, for example, is very different from how I might show love to somebody else. To love Beth in a certain moment, to will the good for her, might look like kissing her on the cheek and telling her that I love her. Because that's the good that she needs. I don't think that's true in my relationship with Kevin. I kissed Kevin on the cheek, told him I love him, might be weirded out, I did it enough, might be a lawsuit. It's a problem, right? It's not the good that's appropriate at the time. It's not the good I ought to or should give that person or Kevin in this example. Silly example, but it, it rings true. And so we have to ask the question, what does John mean by the good? And this is where we're going to have to actually look back to our statement and where I'm going to tip my hand again. Because John's understanding of what the good is for another person is informed by his second word, the truth. And this is why I said the whole phrase is the Christian definition of love. He says he loves in the truth. He clarifies and makes clear how he's going to love. And it's in that second word, the truth. And so if we want to understand how John expects us as Christians to love one another or what good he expects us to pursue for one another, we need to understand what the word truth means. And we get a little hint. We look forward at verse six. He writes this. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. So now we begin to see what this whole truth thing is about. 
to love one another or to love in the truth, as John has been talking about here, is to walk in obedience to his commands. Who is he? In your Bibles, it probably has a capital H. It's Jesus. The love that we show is done in the truth. And the truth is found in the life and person of Jesus. It's Jesus. Now, I want to pause and slow down here. Because this is so important for us to understand. And we, we have to understand this if we want to get what John is saying. John is saying that his love or the good he wants to bring into another's life, as we defined earlier, is all done in obedience to Jesus. This is really interesting. To put it another way, John is saying that any love he shows would not be in contradiction to following Jesus. In fact, the love he shows flows from his following Jesus. I mean, this is why in verse 5, he mentions that this isn't a new command to love one another. It's an old one in verse 6, and it's one that they've heard from the beginning, one that Jesus actually gave them. It's Jesus' new commandment in John, John 13, 34 to 35. He says this, a new command I give you, right? So for John, it's an old command. It's been a few years. But for Jesus, it's brand new. He's just giving his disciples. A new command I give you, love one another. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. The, the key here is the second sentence, as I have loved you. You've got to love one another. It's the same word John uses in his letter. Jesus is saying literally this, as I have agape'd you, I need you to agape each other. Jesus is saying to the disciples, the way I've sought out your good, the things that I've taught you, the way I've taught you to live your life, love each other like that. Do that for each other. The truth that John is talking about here is the life in person of Jesus. It's the teaching in the way of life that Jesus has imparted to them. That's the example. And so whatever love that John shows himself to others or whatever love the church shows to others, John is saying that it must never contradict the life and teachings of Jesus. In other words, the highest good that John could give or the truest love that John could show somebody is love in line with the teachings and life of Jesus. And see, this is why love and truth are, are intricately connected for John. So much so that, that John almost sees them being done synonymously, right? It's love in the truth. One's done in the other. It's because Jesus' life and teachings are the greatest definition and standard of what love is and should be. And so to look to love anybody, anybody, outside of the truth, Outside of obedience to Jesus, it was crazy in John's mind. You couldn't do it. So much so, and we don't have time to do this, but if you look at the second half of the letter, it's all about protecting against heresies, false truths about who Jesus is. Because if the church were to misunderstood who Jesus was, John's concern was that it would affect the love that they had for one another. That's the reason he writes the second half of the letter. And so coming back to where we were, the good that John imagines, the good that he commands the church to bring in the world around him, the highest good is good in line with the life and teachings of Jesus. And so now we're coming full circle. Love in the truth, right? We subbed out love for its definition of being able to will the good of the other. And we have in the truth. And now we've got a definition for what the truth is. And we've got a new sentence entirely. Christian love is to will the good of the other in line with the life and teachings of Jesus. Now remember, I asked you at, our message, at the beginning of our message today, what 
is love. Because I wanted you to compare your definition, your thoughts to John. So I asked you, how does it line up? Put the question in another way. Given what we've talked about, what good are you looking to bring into the lives of the others around you right now? Because I'll play my hand here. I think this question here is where the tension lies. I think what comes off as a limit or a boundary on Christian love is actually a disagreement with what the good for a person is. It's like I said at the beginning here. The reason why so many see the church as having boundaries or limits on its love is because of a difference in opinion uh, uh, over what love is. It's a difference in opinion over what the good is, over what is best for those who we care about. For John, or the followers of Jesus, the good that they desire to will in another's life is informed by the life and person of Jesus. But contrast this now with somebody who's outside of the church. The good they wish to bring into another's life is informed not by the truth that Jesus brings, but by cultural truths maybe. Hollywood, friends, family, social media, or maybe even another religion, these things speak the truth about what the good life is to them. And look, there might be overlap on certain times. For those in the church here and for those out of the church, there oftentimes is a common desire to love the poor in our community. We all want to support those people. I get that. But there are certain topics or certain scenarios, like the ones we mentioned earlier, where there is a difference on what it means to love somebody for those in the church and out of the church. Take romantic relationships, for example. I had a friend once who was just coming off a breakup. Destroyed her. She was really, really upset. A group of us decided to take her out. We'd go for dinner. I'm so sorry this happened. Um, it got kind of towards the end of the night, and people were starting to give her advice about what was going on. And one girl said to her, hey, you know what? To get over this, what you need is a one-night stand. That's what this person said. That would solve the pain, or at the very least, it would be a Band-Aid for the moment. And even better... It would get some, as the girl said, well-needed revenge. I couldn't support this idea, right? Though this girl who was saying that thought this was the best advice at the time. This was the good that she needed. She wanted to love and support her friend, and she wanted to do it by sharing this advice, but it was advice that I couldn't give. And the reason for that wasn't that I didn't want this girl to be happy or to enjoy physical intimacy. The reason was that I didn't believe that this was the best thing for her. And that's because it was outside of the teaching that Jesus and the scriptures has on intimacy, marriage, and happiness. My advice was to take time to grieve, spend time with friends, and pray. And see, that's a fairly tame topic nowadays. But this applies to many other hot topic issues. Sexuality, gender, alcohol, drug consumption, abortion, whatever else. There are lifestyles that people outside of the church consider to be good things. And so they affirm others who participate in those lifestyles. But as followers of Jesus, the gospel, the way of Jesus is to repent and believe. It's to turn from your sin and your old ways of life and follow Jesus wholeheartedly. And that is what I believe is the highest good for anyone. And so I can't affirm people who participate in those lifestyles that I believe are contrary to the teachings of Jesus in the scriptures. And so though it might seem like I have a lack of love or a boundary on my love or a limit to it, it is quite the opposite. In disagreeing with the sin in this person's life, I am loving them to the fullest extent that I can. Now, this disagreement needs to be done with grace it needs to be done in a caring manner. It needs to be done in a loving manner. But to affirm what I believe to be sin according to the life and teachings of Jesus in the scriptures would be unloving. See, again, 
It is all about your definition of love and where it comes from. If the highest good in your life or a person's life is tolerance and the ability to do as they please, then that's what you're going to advocate for others around you. That's the love or the good that you want to will in the world around you. But if you believe that the highest good in a person's life is to be like Jesus and to walk in obedience to him, then encouraging others to be like Jesus in their life is going to be the love and the good that you look to bring in the world around you. And so to answer our question today, does the church have limits on its love? The answer is no. The, the church has a different definition of what love is. They have a different definition of what the good is. It's not a lack of a desire to love, but a different definition of what love itself is. And so the expression of love is often different from what somebody else might think is needed. And this is so important in a culture like ours that jumps to extremes, where labels are tossed around, where people are quick to dismiss peoples or groups because they disagree with them to on topics big or small. It's important to understand that the tensions and the issues that arise over these issues often come from misunderstandings that arise from a difference in opinion over the big things like love and what the good is. Now we're about to close today. And I wanna finish with, with two things, two things. The first is the clarification here. And I wanna be super, super clear. Just because the church has a different definition of love doesn't mean that those within its walls always act like it. There are lots of moments where people who call themselves followers of Jesus neglect the teachings and life of Jesus. I want to make that super clear. There are lots of moments when people who are followers of Jesus do unloving things. The church is filled with people who fail to be loving all the time, and that's why we're all in the same boat. Inside the church, outside the church, we all need grace. Let's make that clear. So I want to say this. If you've been abused or mistreated by anybody in the church in any way. I am not saying that this is simply because they have a different understanding of what love is. Again, the church itself often, as seen in history time and time again, has failed to live up to the standard of love that Jesus shows us. Okay? So I want to make that very clear. Just because we have different definitions doesn't mean we always align with our definition. Secondly, though, and this is how I want to end tonight. Those of you listening today who would maybe uh, wouldn't count yourself as part of the church, or maybe for those of you who are even in the church right now, who maybe, like I said, feel that maybe you've been mistreated by people in the church. I don't know your stories, but, but I'm willing to bet somebody in here has experienced that. I want to finish today by pointing those people specifically, but all of us together, to Jesus. I said earlier today, and I want to bring this up again. Jesus' life and teachings the greatest definition and standard of what love is and should be. Uh, there are often some misunderstandings when it comes to Jesus and his followers on this topic of love, but I want to say really clearly, regardless of your experience, regardless of well, maybe what's brought you to feel at odds with the church in any way, I want to point all of us today to the standard of love, and that is Jesus. If the church has failed you in whatever way, I want to say to you, look to Jesus for yourself. Take some time this next week and read a gospel for yourself because I promise you, Jesus is the fullest and truest expression of what love is. And time after time in my life and in my experience, when I've been discouraged at the hands of the church or at the hands of the world itself, I've found myself drawn in and pulled into the story of who Jesus is and the person that he is. Again, read the story for yourself this week. Open a gospel. I promise you, who you find in there and the love that you see 
will make your heart beat faster. The gospel tells us a story, not of a love with limits, but of a God who put limits on himself. They tell the story of Jesus, who Paul describes this like this, being in very nature God. He didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, Jesus made himself nothing but taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Again, the gospel is the story of Jesus who put limits on himself, who came here as a human, who suffered and died for our sake so that we could have life. Jesus put limits on, us, on himself so that his love could have no limits. Jesus put limits on himself so that we could find forgiveness for our limited love. To put it in another way, the gospel, as it says in Romans, is that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. While we were found lacking in love, with limits to our love, Jesus had no limits. Again, Jesus is the greatest example of what love is and should be. And although the church is meant to reflect the love of Jesus, uh, we're meant to love each other as Jesus has loved us. When the church fails you, and people in it will, you can still look to and trust Jesus, who offers mercy and love to all who come to him. So let me end by saying this one more time. Please, oh please, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus and look to the love that he shows us. Read the Gospels this week. Look at the person and life of who he is. Today, we're going to do that a little more. We're going to come to the table in a moment. Eugene's going to come up. I'm going to pray in a sec. But take time in the rest of this service and the worship. Look to Jesus. Think about him. Dwell on him. And do it this week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Uh, thank you for this community, uh, this church, the well. Uh, thank you for uh, your son, Jesus, who uh, all of us here, we serve, we worship. Jesus, thank you for your love. Thank you that you are the truest definition of what it is and what it should be. Thank you for moments where um, we feel tensions with people in the culture. We can look to you and know what love truly is. Thank you for moments when we feel tensions with people within our own church community, Jesus. We can look to you and know what love is. Father, thank you for the moments when we're the problem. We're showing the lack of love. We can look to you and know that there is forgiveness. Jesus, you are amazing. You are worthy of our praise. And we look to you today. I pray this all in your son's name, Lord. Amen.